Hi, this is Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for jumping into our podcast. Over the next three months, our new series is called Lineage, and we're going to walk through major characters of the Old Testament from Abraham all the way to Daniel and understand the movement of the nation of Israel. This is important because it's part of our lineage. Our lineage isn't just made up of our ethnic or national identity, but as Christians, it's primarily this Old Testament story. Abraham is the father of our faith. And in Ephesians, we learn that God is making one people, Jewish and Gentiles, into the story of lineage, of how God has called a people to himself. So I hope that as you read the Old Testament, it wouldn't just be stories of dead old Jewish guys, but you would look at it as your own ancestry, as part of your story and the story that we're continuing. Hope you enjoy our new series. All right, everyone, we're glad that you're back. I'm sure that many of you shared some real desires that have been deep-seated for about a year, and I hope you're able to do them very soon as things get back to normal. Uh, Well, I have the privilege of concluding our series on the characters of the Bible, and I pray that it's been a help to you. Uh, These messages were specifically designed to be very practical, and uh, not only was it fun for me to prepare them, but uh, it blessed my heart also as I was uh, preaching those messages, and I hope it's been a help to you. Uh, We are concluding with uh, one more character, the Apostle Paul. And we're going to be looking at the theme of evangelism. So if you take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And we're going to look at the area of evangelism. Now, I've talked about the definition of evangelism. We've given messages before on evangelism. So I'm not going to go into detail about, you know, the definition. But we understand that evangelism is all about the good news of Jesus Christ. And there are two principles that are necessary in evangelism, two essential principles in reaching out to others with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I'm just going to give you those two today and we'll be done. The first one is love people enough to meet them where they are. Love people enough to meet them where they are. Let's look in verse 15. Would you follow along with me? It says, those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he's come to the great city of Athens, one of the greatest of the ancient cities. And while waiting for his missions team to join him, the Bible tells us that he was distressed. Now, this word means provoked. It means exasperated. It means highly motivated. This word has a strong emotional connotation. Now, why did the Apostle Paul react so strongly in Athens? Well, verse 16 tells us it's because the city was full of idols. There was a fire that burned within him because he experienced the spiritual condition of the city of Athens. Can I share with you, biblical evangelism always starts with the reaction to the spiritual condition of the world around us. 
Now, all of us have experienced in this COVID pandemic so many different things. We've seen injustice. We've seen oppression. We've seen uh, depression and people uh, going through a a lot of uh, miserable situations. And when we look at all of the things around us and we see the needs, does that distress you at all? Does that provoke in you an emotional reaction that desires to do something about it? That's exactly what Paul was experiencing here in the book of uh, here in the book of Acts in the city of Athens. You know, when we look at the spiritual condition of Southern California, when we look at the things that are going on around us, I can't help but think, you know, the gospel has to go out. The good news has to be given because it motivates me to want to give people the answer, to want to give people a cure for the problems that we see. We want to see men and women freed from oppression, ultimate oppression, through the gospel. And the gospel is that thing that rescues us from not only uh, our destination spiritually, which is a huge thing, eternity, but also from the things that we see around us. And so it starts with a passion. And Paul's passion for people leads him in a direction. Let's continue reading in verse 17. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. Now let's stop right there. Paul's passion leads him in the direction of the synagogues and the marketplace. We know that Paul's habit was to go into the synagogues. He was uh, assigned or or commanded by the Lord to uh, preach the gospel to the Jews, to allow them to know that the Messiah had come and the Messiah had done all these things. And so he was very faithful to that. But the Bible also tells us that he was an apostle to the Gentiles. And so not only did he go into the synagogues, he also went into the direction of the marketplace. In the Greek, uh, the Greek word for it is the agora, and that is the marketplace. And every city had an agora. This is where business was done. This is where everyone came to buy and sell things. This is where people would hang out. They would work and they would play and they would spend their time in the Agora. So the Agora, their marketplace, is where daily life was done. It's where daily life happens. And can I share with you that Jesus calls all of us as missionaries to the marketplace? If we could show that slide of the Agora. You know, you might say to me, well, I mean, I don't live in the ancient times. I don't spend time in an outdoor (coughs) Agora today. Uh, Does that really apply to me? Well, the marketplace is where we work. What's your career? Is it a hospital? Is it that you spend time in a hospital or you spend time uh, in in a uh, university setting? Or do you spend time, you know, uh, in in a business um, office? Those are marketplaces. The marketplace is also where we play. What is your hobby? Do you golf? Are you out and do you enjoy being on a golf course? Do you enjoy fishing or uh, playing sports or being at the beach? Those are the agora. It's the marketplace. The marketplace is where we hang out, where we rub shoulders with people day to day. And that is where the gospel must regularly be shared. 
We see that Paul loved the people of Athens so much that he went into the Agora to share with anyone and everyone who would be there. Now, Paul's gospel evangelism attracts some inquisitive minds. Let's continue reading in verse 18. It says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate him. And some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating some foreign gods. They, They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, in verse 19, it continues, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Verse 20, You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. So, here, the Areopagus was the most prestigious institution in all of Athens. Today, we call it Mars Hill, because in Latin, Areopagus was translated Mars Hill. And so, you've heard that term before. You've heard that place before. But remember, Athens was the birthplace of Western philosophy. It's the home of Socrates and Plato, where they were born. It was the center of learning and achievement in the ancient world. So Mars Hill, or the Areopagus, was the gathering of the greatest minds in the world. If you get invited to Mars Hill, you've come to the big leagues. The audience is made up of the best and brightest. So what is Paul going to say to them as they invite him to Mars Hill? In verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, stop right there, what do you think he should have said? Should he have said, you know, let me expound on Exodus chapter 20. You shall not make uh, for yourselves an idol. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Or maybe Paul should have talked about Leviticus 26. Do not make idols or set up graven images. If you don't obey, I will bring terror and destruction. Is that what Paul preached on? No, he didn't. Hey, have you ever gone to a college campus and seen maybe a street preacher or uh, maybe a street evangelist? Uh, I remember several years ago, I was at Cal Poly Pomona and I was on that campus and I I, I saw a guy who, quote unquote, called himself an evangelist, who brought these big signs. It was a big sign evangelist. And these signs read things like, you're a goddamn sinner or turn or burn, or he had all these colorful things, and they were kind of mean and kind of nasty things uh, on these signs. And I remember that a big crowd had gathered around this guy who was holding up signs and kind of yelling out these, uh, these things. There was a police uh, presence there, and there were all these people. Now, I stood in the back of the crowd, and I was listening to the whispers of uh, some of these students, Uh, as they were kind of whispering as he was yelling, and they would say things like, oh, there's that Christian again yelling that we're going to go to hell because, you know, we support this and that. Or, you know, there's that Christian again, you know, just yelling all these, you know, obscene things. And they were yelling back, right, some of them. Some of them had signs that kind of were the anti-signs to what he had. So if he had, you're a goddamn sinner, uh, the other sign said religion oppresses people. And so just being there for, you know, um, just being there for about a half hour and just feeling the tension there, uh, I began to really sense uh, hatred and uh, oppression. And I I even began to sense, 
you know, that, you know, there's a feeling of, 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 of anger and, and feeling condescended upon. You know what I got a sense of? That no love came from this quote-unquote evangelist. You know, one of my um, favorite people of the 80s, you'd be surprised, is a guy by the name of Richard Simmons. Some of you have never heard of Richard Simmons before. Let me show you a picture of him. He is the pioneer, one of the greatest pioneers of the fitness craze in America. Uh, he was one of those guys that started it. He's done tremendous things. He was a great influence on uh, the fitness culture. And um, he's changed the lives of countless people. I remember watching an interview where Richard Simmons was sharing about the problem of morbid obesity. And he was saying, the problem is that a person will go and tell a morbidly obese person, you're fat, you're disgusting, you look like a pig. You know, if you live this way, you're going to die young. You probably have diabetes. You're going to get a heart attack. Why don't you go and exercise? Why don't you throw that sandwich away and why don't you do something profitable? That's what they'll tell them. But you know what I will do? I will go to that person who's morbidly obese and I'll share my past with that person that I was once that way. And I'll cry with them. I'll listen to their problems. I'll hold their hand. I'll teach them exercises that they can do that's simple. I'll take them to their jazzercise classes. I'll even uh, set up a cruise where they can come and they can uh, jazzercise with me all week on this cruise. I'll educate them on low-calorie meals. Hey, who will make the impact on a morbidly obese person? You know, that really touched me, that interview, because that is exactly what evangelism should look like. Some people uh, show signs and say obscenities and talk past people, but that's not really love, is it? That's not really evangelism. As a matter of fact, you can even question the motivation of a person that would do that. Evangelism starts by loving people that you're sharing with. Loving people means learning about your audience. You want to look into their culture. You want to listen to them and their difficulties. You want to understand their background, what they've uh, experienced. You see, evangelism, in a real sense, is doing your homework. And it means making a point to understand the person that you're trying to reach. You see, Paul loves the people of Athens enough to meet them where they are. He has observed their history and their culture, and he understands their thinking. And so in verse 22, we see it. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Here, Paul understands the Athenian culture is very religious. And it's true, a contemporary historian, Pliny, wrote, at the time of Nero, Athens was well over 30,000 statues of gods, not counting the 30,000 statues that were in the Parthenon alone. Think about it, 60,000 statues were all across the city of Athens. Petronius uh, wrote a satire called the Satyricon, who said, it's easier to find a god than a man in Athens. You see, they were very religious. Paul understood this. 
And the culture of Athens was so religious that just in case they had missed a god, they had a generic altar built so as not to offend a deity that was unknown to them. So in verse 23, look at what he says. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. Now what you worship is something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. You see, Paul starts where the Athenians are, and he builds a bridge from the familiar to the unfamiliar. And see, evangelism must start with building a bridge. When we evangelize, we have to ask the questions, what bridges have we built? As you study the Apostle Paul's life uh, in the Bible, you see one word that's used over and over frequently, and that is the word reason. Paul reasons with people. He reasons with them in the marketplace. He reasons with them in the synagogues. He reasons with them in their homes. You see, reasoning is the strongest material bridge to reach people with the gospel. You see, people want to understand this good news that we're excited to share with them. Do we package it in a way that's understandable? How do you share the gospel? Do you love people enough to meet them where they are? The second point is, do you respect people enough to give them the whole truth? Can we put that up? Number two, respect people enough to give them the whole truth. Paul's posture, we see it in Acts 17, is a posture of boldness in the gospel. As a matter of fact, Romans 1.16, what does he say? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Paul is not ashamed to share the whole truth of the gospel. And you know, today in our society as Christians, we are tempted to be ashamed, aren't we? We're tempted to be timid because we feel we may offend people. There is a well-known pastor who shared, I don't preach on sin because millennials are turned off by the word sin. So when I preach, I use the word mistake. Or I use the word being broken instead of preaching on sin. And he was asked why, and he said, well, it's because we need to meet people where they are. And that was my first point, right? To love people enough to meet them where they are. The problem is, sin is the whole reason for the gospel. Sin is an important truth that we have to share because the truth of sin is the reason why people are broken. It's the reason why people are miserable in their mistakes. You see, just because we meet people where they are doesn't mean that we stay where they are. And that's the whole point. The whole truth has to be given. And we must not change the truth of the gospel. Sure, we build a bridge. Sure, we reason with people. But we never change the truth of the gospel. You know why? Because there's no power without the whole truth. There's no love of God if people don't get the whole truth. It just sounds confusing to them. You know, I had a roommate uh, in college. His name was Darren, and he was a good friend of mine, but he was one of those guys that always liked to get under your skin. I don't know if you ever had a friend like that, where he was an instigator. He always liked to do that. And I remember he would do that to me all the time. One time, I remember coming into my dorm, and he came up to me as sincere as he could. He looked me in the eye, and he said, I forgive you. And he said it just like that. And I remember thinking, well, what do you mean, Darren? What do you? And I remember he put his a finger on my mouth and he said, shh, shh, I forgive you. I forgive you for what you've done. And he sounded like a martyr, right? 
And the whole time I'm asking him, well, I don't understand. He's like, hey, 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 let's not talk anything more about it. Hey, I forgive you. That's all that counts. I love you, man. And they kind of walked away. And that one phrase bugged me the whole day. As a matter of fact, at night, I would lay in bed. What did I do? What is he talking about? Come to find out, he's just a jerk. He was, he was you know, he's trying to get under my skin. But can I share with you, that's kind of how many Christians present the gospel. We say, Jesus loves you. He forgives you. Shh, you don't need to know anymore. He just forgives you. And our Christian culture is so afraid to offend. We don't want to be labeled backward or bigoted or ignorant. So we announce very proudly and very loudly, God loves you. God forgives you. But we don't share about sin. We don't share about repentance. We don't share about Jesus being the only way. Instead, we give a lot of good deeds. We do a lot of humanitarian projects. And we leave out the truth of the gospel that, frankly, confuses people if they don't understand the whole truth. And see, the good news is good news because it handles such a bad situation. Will we honestly uh, give the truth because we ex respect people enough to share everything. Paul expertly shares the whole truth of the gospel so that it is crystal clear to the Athenians what he's saying. There's no confusion in his gospel message. And I want you to see this. It's pretty awesome how he tailors this message to be a perfect fit for the first century Athenians. And by the way, I want to I give us also practical points that we need for evangelism in the 21st century as well. So let's look at what Paul says, okay? And the first part of that, uh, point A, if I can uh, give you that, if you could put it up, is give the truth honestly. Respect people enough to be honest. Let's look in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. So Paul's saying this unknown God that you built the altar to, he is the creator of all, and he, can, he cannot be contained. That means he's utterly transcendent, right? And he's created everything, and he's the rightful Lord of everything. Think of how dogmatic of a statement that he's making at Mars Hill. He's saying this is God, and this is the creator, and he's done everything. It completely contradicts the current culture of Athens who had a love affair with idols, right? Let's look in verse 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So this unknown God, being the creator, he has no needs. He's completely self-sufficient. Can I share with you, this completely contradicts the current religion of Athens. If you've done any kind of high school history, you know about the pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses that they worshipped. Zeus and Hera and Apollo and Artemis and Poseidon and Aphrodite and Hades and Ares. They were worshipping these gods and they were much like human beings, weren't they? They had needs just like human beings. If you've ever uh, listened to the mythology, the things that they believed, they had needs just like human beings. And they needed humans to meet their needs. Paul is saying the true God isn't like this at all. You see, Paul is honestly giving the whole truth. And it contradicts their culture and their religion, but it's making an impact on those Athenians that are listening. 
And that's what the gospel is supposed to do. Let's continue reading in verse 26. From one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. So this unknown God, being the creator, he has a master plan. He orders our lives. Now, I know that this sounds like an innocent verse, but this completely contradicts the current philosophy of Epicureanism that was in Athens. As a matter of fact, many of the Epicurean philosophers were sitting at Mars Hill. And the Epicurean philosophy holds that everything happens by chance, that life has no direction and no purpose. And Paul is contradicting that. Now, why does this unknown God order our lives? Verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So this unknown God, being the creator, he sustains us, he orders our lives because the creator desires a relationship with his creation. Now again, this completely contradicts the current philosophy of Stoicism in Athens, right? Many Stoics were also sitting at Mars Hill listening to Paul. And the Stoic philosophy holds that gods are unknowable, that the gods are distant and indifferent to humanity. And Paul is breaking all of these ideas, the culture, the religion, the philosophy. Are you getting the idea? Paul doesn't come to Mars Hill fawning over men. He doesn't come flattering his audience so that they'll like him, you know, in some way. No, Paul respects them enough to honestly share the whole truth of the gospel, even if it contradicts their culture, their religion, and their philosophy. Why is it? Because he is not ashamed of the gospel truth. It is the power of God for transformation. Let's look at the second point. Point B is use truth relevantly. Not only do we respect them enough to be honest, we need to respect them enough to be relevant. Remember, our desire is to meet people where they are so that they may understand the gospel. It's building a bridge from the familiar to the unfamiliar. You know, uh, many years ago, I had a couple uh, come to me, a married couple, at the end of a Sunday service and they said, you know, Pastor Dave, we like you. And you know how fun, that great that makes somebody feel when they say, you know, we love you, or we really like you a lot. They said this, Pastor Dave, we like you because you're not super smart like other pastors. What? <laughs> That's what they said. And they were saying, well, let me explain. When we were, we were at a church where the pastor preached like an Ivy League pastor, or Ivy League professor, excuse me, to PhD students. And every time he preached, it was always over our heads. He was so smart, not like you, right? He said, you preach like a community college TA. And I didn't know how to take that at first, right? But he, they said, we love that because you're simple. You're full of stories and we understand you. Do you know that was the greatest compliment that I ever got? Because that's what it means to be relevant to somebody. You know, Jesus, when he preached, he preached parables. He preached things that were simple, that were full of stories, that were understandable. And here the Apostle Paul is doing the same thing. That was how Paul was addressing the Athenians. Relevant, familiar, understandable. Let's look at, at it in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. 
Paul uses a quote from one of the greatest poets, one of the rock stars of the Greeks, Epimenes of the 6th century, who wrote, for in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul takes that to illustrate a fact that we need this unknown God. He's the creator, the sustainer, and the ruler of all things. And in him, we live and move and have our being. He is not dependent on us. God is utterly self-sufficient. Rather, we are dependent on him. We need him. And it's ironic, isn't it? Paul is saying you need him, but you don't know him. And the gospel is all about having a relationship with the person that we don't know, and that is God. Verse 28 continues, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, Paul again uses another quote from another rock star, uh, Aratus of Soli. And the poem that he takes from was so popular that every Athenian knew it and memorized it since childhood. And this is the poem. Zeus fills the streets, the markets, and the homes. Zeus fills the seas, the shores, and the rivers. Everywhere is our need of Zeus, for we are his offspring. Paul tells them it's not Zeus, it's Jesus. And he takes them from a God who is unknown to a God that birthed their very existence. We come from this God. The first truth is give truth honestly. The second is use truth relevantly. Relevantly. Our third point, point C, is apply truth personally. You see, the gospel never stays at the theoretical. It can't just be a theological exercise. The gospel must always come down to personal decision-making, to personal response. And so let's look at how Paul takes this gospel message and calls for them to make a personal decision. Verse 29, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Notice, Paul deals with the sin that he saw when he first came to the city of Athens. This was the sin that provoked and exasperated and distressed him. This was the sin that the Athenians were mired in, that they were in bondage to, and that is the sin of idolatry. 60,000 idols in the city of Athens. And what does Paul tell the men of the Areopagus? He tells them to repent, to turn from this direction of idolatry. Let's look in verse 31. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed He has given proof of all of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul tells them to personally repent, to turn away from idolatry, and to personally turn to Jesus, the resurrected eschatological king. Do you see that? It is a personal invitation to come to Jesus Christ. It's the same invitation that he was giving in verse 18 of chapter 17, where he talks about Jesus and the resurrection. He gives it again, and he shares it with the men at the Areopagus or Mars Hill. Now, I want you to notice the response in verse 32. When they heard about the message of the dead, some of them sneered. That means that some of them ended up just rejecting and mocking it. Now, do you know why they mocked it outright? 
because there was a popular saying that hung in the front of the city. It was engraved in the front of the city of Athens. And this is what it said. Once a man dies and the earth drinks up his blood, it is final. There is no resurrection. That was what was hung in the city of Athens. Every person has seen it since childhood, that there is no such thing as a resurrection. And yet here Paul is stating boldly and emphatically that there was a man, the God-man, who has resurrected. And the gospel flew in the face of their religion, their culture, and their philosophy. And some of them couldn't handle that truth, so they rejected it. Verse 32, some sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So the first response was rejection, not ever. The second response is reflection, not now, maybe later. We'd like to hear more about it. Verse 33, at that Paul left the council. Verse 34, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. The third response is reception. You see, rejection, reflection, and reception. When you share the gospel, you will have one of these three responses. And can I share with you, and this is where I kind of want to close, but I want to give you something practical. As we share the gospel with others, and again, we're getting back to normal, and I'm sure that many of you have been praying to not only hang out with your friends, but even to share the gospel, the good news with your friends or your associates or your neighbors. As that happens, can I share that God calls us to be faithful and leave the results up to him? When I was a younger Christian, I thought it was all about me and all, of, and all up to me to save people. And so when someone rejected the gospel, I'd get down on myself, you know, because I thought it was in my ability to persuade and I wasn't able to persuade them, you know, well enough. Or when somebody uh, reflected on the gospel but didn't receive the message, I thought it was up to me to make something happen, to do something, you know, uh, clever or something, you know, to, to be able to bring them to Christ. But, you know, the Bible teaches that salvation is a supernatural act that is brought about by the Holy Spirit. And so only God can open someone to receive the gospel. You know what I learned as I've uh, continued in my Christian life in the area of evangelism? My job is only to share it. That's all that I'm required to do, to share the good news. And that's incredibly freeing. Because now that I'm an older Christian, I realize that God is only expecting my faithfulness in sharing the gospel. And that's what he's pleased with. He's pleased with my faithfulness. So whether it's Peter at Pentecost, and Erwin did a great job uh, preaching on that last week, whether it's Peter at Pentecost with 3,000 people saved in Acts chapter 2, or whether it's Paul at Athens with only a handful of people saved in Acts chapter 17, doesn't matter. Neither was more obedient than the other. Neither was more successful in God's eyes. Both were faithful to what they'd been called to. You know, sharing the gospel, I've heard this so many times, and it's such a help to me, and I want it to be a help to you too. Sharing the gospel is like links in a chain, if you can imagine that, right? The first time somebody shares the gospel to somebody, they may sneer at it, right? That's the first link. But then the second time somebody shares the gospel, right, maybe they'll mock it. That's the second link. Or then they'll hear it again, a third link. They might question it a little bit more. 
Or maybe the fourth link, they might be curious and may ponder it a little bit more. And then maybe by the fifth link, they're ready to receive the gospel. I've known guys like that. I've known a guy that started mocking the Lord to five links later becoming a great Christian and just a wonderful, wonderful, uh, wonderful brother in the Lord. That happens, but it might take five links, might take 10 links, may take 30 links. We don't know. But what we do know is that we're called to be one of those links, if not you know, more than one of those links, to continue to share the gospel, to allow the opportunity for God to save souls. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us wherever we are. Lord, we have dealt with so many uh, Bible characters and so many practical situations that they were in. We pray, Lord, that as we live the life that you called us to, that we would also look at the Apostle Paul and we would also learn from him how to evangelize and how to look at what it means to share your most precious gospel. We're not ashamed of your gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.